0: I want you to close your eyes and imagine for a moment, an event, a celebration that was just so full of joy and goodness and life that you did not want it to end. What was that moment or that season of your life? It might be a party that someone threw for you. It may be the season where you dated someone who later became your spouse. It might be a sunset overlooking the Grand Canyon or on top of Table Mountain. might be the final night of a missions trip, swapping stories around dinner or a family trip. What is that for you? Now you can open your eyes. I'm considering what that would be for me, and I thought about a number of different choices. I'm, I, I thought about picking the Ryder Cup, the 2000, or sorry, 1991 Ryder Cup, which is a golf event between the United States and Europe. It was waged in Kiwa Island that year. I got to walk between the ropes and actually walk with a few players who played, too. It was pretty cool. Or maybe have been the 2005 uh, College Basketball National Championship in St. Louis where I got to celebrate with my favorite team. I got to go with a friend of mine. Uh, just a phenomenal time. Uh, or, or it might be my wedding weekend. And by the way, these are in no particular order, all right? So let me just, let me just make that clear. But, but honestly... A wedding week was one of the reasons it was so amazing, was the whole weekend, especially at our rehearsal dinner, a number of our friends got up and shared, testified about the gloriousness of Jesus-centered relationships, Jesus-centered friendships, which was was incredible for my whole family and extended family to hear. It was awesome. But I'm going to choose, I think I chose in my mind as I thought about this question, my fourth-grade birthday party. My fourth-grade birthday party, which we were able to secure the local elementary school gymnasium, my school's gymnasium, complete with scoreboard access and access to every ball that they had. And with with about 17 to 20 other other friends, other dudes, we just played from 5 p.m. to well past midnight, every conceivable game you can think of, all right? Except for rugby. I'm sorry, South Africans. We just didn't know about it. I still don't know the rules. Um, But I'll get there, get there. And I remember... It was so wonderful. He just didn't want the night to end. We had enough Gatorade to last a lifetime. We could be there all night. Didn't want it to end, but eventually it did. We all eventually went home, and I went back to chores, homework, and loneliness, because all my, bro- my brothers and sisters were both so much older than I was. We're talking about God's story and the role that he offers us in it. And our last chapter was the best chapter yet. It was about grace, chapter 3, Grace. We read a story whose climax is a celebration that's made possible by Jesus. And we concluded that Jesus is the the true older brother who goes and searches for family members just like me. And upon returning home, they're immediately forgiven and warmly accepted into the father's family. And not only that, there's this over-the-top celebration in heaven and on earth. And in our story we read last week, it was described in terms of a feast. There was music, the finest robes, there was jewelry, there was comfy clothing, and a fattened calf that could feed an entire village. And that's why on earth, when someone comes home, when someone trusts their life to Jesus so they're welcomed in the Father's family, we throw a big party called a baptism. We throw a baptism party on the beach. And we don't have a fatted calf, all right, because like every, you know, it's not in the budget, But we do have music and celebration and shouts of joy and a saltwater affirmation that this once-dead friend is alive again, and we celebrate it with them, and people have signs out, and it's a wonderful occasion. Why can't moments like these, moments of constantly felt love, nonstop answers to prayer, pats on the back, highest of highs, why can't they keep going even as we become Christians? Why does all that stop? And in many cases just seems to get replaced with with pain and hardship and suffering. Sometimes even more so after we decided to trust our life to Jesus. Why can't we just then go from grace, the moment we trust Jesus, to glory? To being with him forever. And all its goodness and all its fullness. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to give you the answer to this question. I'm going to tell you the answer to this question. And then I'm going to illustrate answer to this question, and I want to show you the answer to this question in God's Word, okay? So first I'm going to tell you, God's story between grace and glory, between trusting your life to Jesus and finally going home to be with Jesus, is a story of tension. Every Christian must live in this tension from which he or she can emerge as a free lover of God. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, our 12-year-old Mason was asking me this week, hey, Dad, what are you preaching on Sunday? This was on Thursday. Thankfully, I knew the answer to that, by the way, about Thursday. That's a, good, that's a good sign. So I said, well, actually, Mason, I'm, I'm talking about how God wants us to become free lovers of him. And Mason looked at me like, oh, boy. I like, go, what, what, what's that? And, and so I explained, you know, he said, you know when you were, when we first moved to Grand Cayman, Mason? You remember when Mams, which is his grandmother, visited? And there was this moment when you guys were in the den in the sitting room, and she was asking you, like, what makes you happy about your dad? What makes you happy it's like she was checking up on me, I don't know why. Just being a mom, I guess. And I heard, hey, I heard you reply that you wish you had a dad like your friends, like your friend's dad, who, who would give you them a, a Wii U, or, or a scooter, or some, some really nice gift every time that dad returned home, because that dad was gone a lot. I wish my dad was like that. He would give me stuff when he showed up. And, and he didn't know this. And I was telling him this you know, five years later, six years later. I was in the other room, and I overheard it. And it cut me. I was like, oh, man. And my mom had a great response. But Mason, Mason said, yeah, yeah, you know, I remember that. And as he remembers that, he, you know, we laughed about it. Because how silly it sounds now. Right? Since, since he's grown up, and we've been through things together, and now Mason loves me for me. At least most of the time, right? <laughs> yes. He's, he's, he's shaking his head a little bit, so we'll take that as a good sign. Now, I do still give Mason things occasionally. I give him the occasional free pen and free access, free access to our refrigerator. I mean, <laughs> generous stuff, all right? <laughs> Not unfeeling. Yes, free Wi-Fi. Thank you, James. I, I, well, he has the, the password first. He, he pays for it, but <laughs> that's right. But what if I'd given into that comment, that comment that honestly cut me deep at the time? I was like, "Oh man, he's disappointed in me." You know, that comment. I wish I had a dad who gave me stuff every time he showed up. What if I just gave into that? Well, I would never know if Mason really loved me, or just loved the things that I gave him. Right? But we've had time, and we've gone through stuff together, and I know that he does love me for me. So turn with me, if you would, in the New Testament, to Second Corinthians, chapter four starting in verse 7. Paul comes out of this tension in life that he's experiencing, loving God, loving his father for his father's sake. Not just for the things his dad can give him, but just loving his dad and wanting to please him. We're going to hear about a former prodigal son named Paul. He's going to describe this tension he now feels between grace, first trusting Jesus, and glory still to come. And I want us to hear this tension. We're not going to go through this passage verse by verse and and get through all the technicalities of it. We're going to kind of take a big 10,000 foot overview and I want you to to feel and to hear the tension of this life we're in when we're in between grace first trusting Jesus and glory when we get to go and be at home with him one day. Starting in verse 7. But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. By jars of clay he means a body, a weak body. in you. And so you hear this tension, I think, already, that Christians' lives are filled with pain, but it doesn't totally crush them. It doesn't need to crush them. right? You might be confused, but you're not driven to despair. It's a tension, right, because of what he has to say next. He doesn't have to give up. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And this is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Jesus is risen from death. So one day every Christian will also follow in his footsteps. We'll all be raised from death. It's glorious. And because of this, Paul can say, as we see in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, right, our body wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, again, you see that tension this age, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, the age to come. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Light and momentary affliction versus the eternal weight of glory. Seen suffering versus unseen eternal joy. Here's where this tension, this tension between living between these two ages, the age now, the age to come, really gets its most vivid description here. I love this, verses uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, our body, he's using a metaphor here, a tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but a house eternal in the heavens. In other words, a new body. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, Yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This age is filled with pain, filled with hurricanes, filled with busted up relationships. It's filled with cruelty that we never even imagined, and sometimes that cruelty comes from within us. We can get through that by focusing on the future hope, the future hope that God has prepared for all of us who cry out and say yes to Jesus. This future hope allows us to do something actually pretty remarkable. Look at this in verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home with the body or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So in the midst of suffering, by focusing on the hope we have to come, focusing on our future hope, in Jesus, in the resurrection, in a new body, and being with Jesus forever, life can start to become about totally pleasing our Father. We just want to please him for his sake, not because of what he wants to give us, but just because we want to make him happy. We want to love, we want to, we love, we want to hear him one day say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what verse 10 is all about. Verse 10 is not a judgment of you're a Christian or not a Christian. You're welcome to heaven or not welcome to heaven. It's a judgment that everyone will receive for the life they've been given in Jesus Christ and what you've done with it. It's a, life of, it's a judgment of commendation, not condemnation. Will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Will I have really pleased my Father like I aimed to do with my life. Now this isn't the first time in the Bible God helps someone move from loving God for just what he can give them to becoming a totally free lover of God who who loves God just for God's sake. Like Mason loves his dad for his dad's sake now and not just for the things I can give him. There's another story in the Bible that depicts this beautifully, if not painfully, and that is the story of a man named Job. Here is a righteous man in Job if there ever was one. And Satan, God's enemy, picks up on this And Satan comes to God and says in effect, of course Job loves you. He's got seven sons, got three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, and has been called the greatest man in the entire East. Now, we didn't really know about the West at that time. So, I don't know, maybe that's just God's inspiration there. But Satan says in effect, if you take all that away from Job, he's going to stop loving you. You know that, right? In other words, Job loves you, God, with a mercenary love. You know what a mercenary is, right? It's someone who fights for a cause because they're paid. Not for a love of the cause or a love of a king because they're paid to do it. Now, God knows that Satan is ultimately wrong, but he's penultimately right. Job's love isn't yet what it could be. And so, God listens to Satan and he allows Job to suffer. Satan says, let me, let me take all this away from him except for his life and see if he still loves you. And God says, okay. And he lets Job suffer. Why does God do that? Doesn't God want Job to be happy? To have everything he could possibly need? C.S. Lewis wrote this really wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And it, these letters are, it's a series of letters in which a senior devil is writing a junior devil on how to tempt an individual on earth. So you get all these junior devils who are assigned a person. And their whole job is to work circumstances out to tempt a human being. And so you have this senior devil named Screwtape who's riding this junior devil, giving him advice on how to tempt his human being. Listen to what the the senior devil says about the enemy, who in this case, of course, is God, right? God is their enemy. Here's what he says about God. The enemy allows disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey has to really buckle down and learn Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married. Then they begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk. God takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting human vermin into what he calls free lovers and servants. He wants their freedom, desiring their freedom. He therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. God wants human beings to freely grow to the point where they can freely love him. And so Job faces pain, he faces adversity, he faces suffering. I mean, total devastation and loss in his life. And he has these friends around him who go between lecturing him, saying, Job, you must have done something wrong that you may need to make right. it has got to be something. Between that and these sort of nice but empty platitudes, like, let go and let God, Job. <laughs> Things like that, right? And Job's like, oh, thanks. Thanks, i got boils all over me. It's hard to just let go and let God. The turning point, though, comes in chapter 19, in the middle of sort of summarizing what's been happening to him, what he's been stripped of, specifically his extended family no longer visit him. His friends don't even check in with him anymore. His wife feels like a stranger in the same household with him. His kids are talking behind his back, like, yep, that's my dad, pretty much a sinner. In the midst of this, he doesn't lose heart, as Paul says too, right? Here's what he says in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I, not another. How my heart yearns within me. So first of all, an incredibly prophetic announcement of, of God living on this earth and Job getting to see God in the flesh. And not only is this a prophetic announcement about who Jesus will be, but how his heart yearns for that moment. How does his heart learn to yearn for God in that kind of way? He, God uses two principal tools to make Job into a free, radically free lover of him He uses present suffering and future hope. And guys, there's no no other way than present suffering and future hope. If God restored to Job all the comfort, all the health, and the savings account, Job would have thanked God for all the blessings and likely eventually moved on. But instead, through suffering, Job gets something far more valuable, this desire to see and be with God for God's sake not just for the things he can give Job. And this is exactly the same story that God works through the Apostle Paul in his life. What do we see? We see present suffering. We documented this pretty well. It's worth noting, by the way, the 2 Corinthians is Paul's most vulnerable letter. He talks very freely in this letter, above all other letters, about the pain and adversity he experiences. You know, when people talk about pain and adversity, how do they respond to you? When you talk about it, with that rare person, how do they respond? People can respond differently when we open up about it, I think. We, some can dismiss our pain as if they really didn't even hear it. Some people can minimize pain because, you know, Syrian refugees, because children in Africa are starving. It's almost like, yeah, but I am hurting. Even worse, people can try to fix pain, offering all kinds of Things they read about or hear about and remedies and all kinds of different things and pass around ideas without really listening to the pain that you're experiencing. But worst of all, after opening up, people can use exposed pain against us. We, we share something, we say something, and then later we find they've used it against us through gossip, through a hurtful word or barb. This worst scenario happens with the Apostle Paul he writes this letter, which we don't actually have, but he refers to in 2 Corinthians as his tearful letter. He writes to the Corinthians his tearful letter, opening his heart towards them. You know how they respond? They respond by more people saying, see, Paul, he's weak. These other guys in the church, they're strong. and calls them super apostles. Paul, he's wishy-washy. He's weak. How does Paul get through that? How does he still actually expose himself? So he still writes this letter here, 2 Corinthians, and exposes Weakness, tears. How can he do this? Why would he do this? I mean we open up ourselves up to people in pain, hoping to listen, sympathize, even pray for us. How do we keep opening up when they don't? Paul keeps doing it. Paul's hope wasn't that people would respond well when he opened up. His hope was in something far more sure. A future hope. Verse fourteen, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Verses 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Chapter 5, verse 2, for in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our a heavenly dwelling, a perfect resurrection body. So that verse 3, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Verse 8, Paul's thinking about Meditating on being at home with the Lord, his focus is completely on a anchored, more sure hope, being with Jesus forever, with a new body free from pain, suffering, and sin. He can be vulnerable because his hope is indestructible. We see that in verse, verses 9-10, through 10, how, how, how meditating on this hope produces a longing, a singular aim, he says. We make it our aim to please God. I only want to please God now. People have let me down. Yes. This world cannot, promises, cannot fulfill all that it promises. So I have but one true hope, and that is my God. And I know that I'll be with Him forever because I've trusted Jesus, and now I just want him to be happy with what I've done. Who's behind pain and adversity? That's evidence in Joe's story. We don't always know the devil or if it's God, but even if it's the devil. Even if the devil's behind the adversity you're experiencing, it's God's devil. Meaning that, that, that God is still superintending your life and everything that's happening in it. He knows what's happening. It's under his supervision. Which causes many of us to wonder, then why is it then, if God is watching out for me, if he's supervising all this, why isn't it getting any easier? Why isn't he giving me all the tangible, felt blessings I first experienced when I began to walk with him? Because he's refining your love. He's taking you from the mercenary love to being a free lover of him. And so he's making you more like Jesus. Jesus spent his life talking about he just wanted to do what pleased the Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, Jesus said. In other words, his sustenance was just pleasing God, pleasing God, pleasing God. And God is making us more like Jesus by giving us a freer kind of love. How's he doing this? He is in verses 17 and 18. This light and momentary trouble is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are are seen, things that are unseen. Those three little words, as we look, are the key for how we can transform from being a person who loves God just for his things to someone who loves God for himself by looking to a future hope looking and looking and thinking and meditating on this future hope. So here's my, our role in God's story, to grow from a mercenary lover of God to a free lover of God. And Before I get any further, let me make this clear. You shouldn't feel any sense of lesserness, lessness or inferiority for loving God for the forgiveness he offers through Jesus Christ or, or loving God because he frequently answers your prayers or loving his God because of his felt presence you experience as you sing to him. Those are amazing. Don't feel bad about loving God for those things. Not at all. He uses these things to draw us to him. And as we grow in him, he refines that love more and more and more. So let's say, for example, you fall in love with someone. And you first and understandably start to love that someone because of their assets, what they bring to the table. They make you laugh or they make you smile, right? They help you feel good about yourself. They're attractive. They have similar interests. They have connections, but over time, you begin to love that person for themselves alone, right? And as some of those assets fade away, you don't mind so much. You don't care because your love has been purified. And both of those loves are natural. You're drawn in because of all that someone has to offer, but eventually you love the person for themselves. And that's how it's supposed to be with God as we grow. So how do you grow into that kind of love where you just want to aim to please God, to make Him happy, Number one, walk through, don't run from suffering. Walk through, don't run from suffering. Our generation is very abnormal, guys. Abnormal when it comes to meaningfully integrating suffering into our lives. And even see suffering as a valuable addition to it. Very abnormal. Dr. Paul Brand is a well-regarded orthopedic surgeon and treating uh, leprosy patients. He spent the first part of his life, first part of his medical career in the East, in India, in the second part of his medical career in the United States. And he had something very interesting to say about this, about the West. He said, in the West, I encountered societies that seek to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live at a greater comfort level than any that I had previously treated. But they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Why is that? Because ours is the ibuprofen generation. Right? If something may hurt or does hurt, even if it may hurt, we want to alleviate it at all costs. So we have particip- participation trophies. that are the same size as the first place trophy, so little Timmy doesn't get his feelings hurt, right? Even though little Timmy knows he lost 8 nothing in the championship game. Why? Because we don't want to hurt anyone. No one should feel hurt in their life. Grade inflation at nearly every year level in schools to offset anxiety in children and often in their parents who are worried they won't get into a certain kind of school. Employees are rarely fired or demoted, but they resign or are reallocated, realigned, or repurposed. Oppositional defiant disorder and impulse control disorder, real things, are classified as psychological conditions because it's not your fault you're defiant and impulsive in your actions, but since it's causing you and me pain, here's a pill to take. I'm not against medicines to take for certain legitimate things, don't get me wrong but it's not the only thing that's wrong with the situation. It's a situation. It's a byproduct also of our culture. And every other document in society and history, there's a way to meaningfully integrate pain into life and understand it. It's only been in the last hundred years we begin to view pain, sorrow, suffering as an interruption to life, purely as interruption to life, stopping me from all the blessings and good life I'm supposed to experience. We are the weird ones. Our society is the weird ones, not the last... 1,900 years or whatever. The biblical view is this, that in between grace and glory, God is using suffering to enlarge your love for him, to purify your love for him. That's the biblical view, and that can help us begin to walk through suffering, not just run from it. Secondly, our role is this, to, to establish in your life some hope rhythms. Now, these are just some suggestions here, okay? Hope rhythms, because our role in growing, remember, are these three words, as we look, as we look to the things that are unseen, as we look to a future hope, that's when we don't lose heart. So hope rhythms, number one, take time to imagine your resurrection. It is good to just take time every day to imagine what it's going to be like to be in the presence of Jesus finally, pain-free, free of suffering, free of sin, free of rejection, free of weariness, free of injury, finally resurrected with others. Others, Christians who have previously helped us and some who've hurt us are now perfect, free from sin in the presence of Jesus Christ. Just to imagine that in your mind's eye every day. Here's another suggestion. Write out what you hope Jesus says to you. When you go to be with him forever, write out what you hope Jesus says to you. I did this this week. Because remember again, verse 10 is not a judgment of condemnation, but of commendation. Well done or not. What do you hope by pleasing God, he's going to say to you one day? Here's what I wrote down this week. It took me a few days and I revisited it. Ryan, well done in caring for Katie when she was in pain. and shepherding your boys when they experienced hardship. Caring for my flock, even as many people came and went. Teaching the good news faithfully. And being a good friend to a chosen few. And even as I wrote this, I just felt my affection grow. My pure, a pure love rise up within me for Jesus. That one day I may get to hear this from my Savior. And, I, and it made me want to please Him, want to live my life to hear those kinds of words from my Savior. Here's another suggestion. Remind yourself that every beauty and pleasure is a hint of the glory to come. We'll talk about this more next week, but every steak, every mango, every jasmine tree, every eagle ray. I love to see eagle rays. Every coral reef, we can say this is amazing, and yet the best is still to come. It's just, this is just a hint. For those of you guys who are divers, this is like right up your alley, being down there and seeing this beauty everywhere. And no one can really talk to you, and you're just, it's just color. And you realize in those moments, this is just a hint of what I'm going to see one day when I'm with my Savior. Here's the third thing that can be part of your role. Enter into a change recognition community. You've heard of facial recognition where something recognizes your face and recognizes a a change in your face. We need a change recognition community. Paul says that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So how is it then that we see ourselves change? How do we see God changing us to becoming these free lovers of him, not just mercenary lovers. I know that in my own experience, I can't see change in myself. It's very difficult. I need others to point it out in me. And that's why one of the reasons we need community so desperately. We need people to come around us to hold us accountable, encourage us, but also to say, you know what? I've seen that you're changing. I see that God's doing what you've been asking to do in your life. I want to point that out to you. We all need that. So find community. Each summer, we spend some time back in the U.S., we start in Florida, and we head north on the eastern seaboard of the United States until eventually we cross the North Carolina state border. And as we cross the border, I always like to cue up my iPod and play James Taylor's Carolina on my mind. And every time I play it, I, Katie can attest to this, I tear up. I tear up. We cross the border. I start to tear up. When he says, in my mind, I'm going to care. Can't you see the sun shining? Can't you just hear the moonshine? Yes, I can, James. And I start tearing up. Because I remember growing up there, like I remember, you know, family football games in the fall, you know, just tossing the, the ball around in our yard, friendships forward at a summer camp where I came to trust Jesus, proposing to Katie overlooking the foothills of the mountains of North Carolina. And I tear up because I know, in part, I can't get those moments back. They're irretrievable. That sense of irretrievability, it's kind of like death. Something has died. And the older we get, the more we realize that certain losses are irretrievable. You cannot get them back. Which sucks the joy right out of our lives a lot of times. But here's where the resurrection of Jesus offers something very unique. Other religions can promise a kind of spiritual future, a bliss. But they can only offer consolation for what you've lost. The resurrection of Jesus is restoration for what you've lost. You don't just get your body back. You get the body you always wanted, and that's what you get back. You you don't just get your life back. You get the life you've always wanted that you never had. Jesus Christ is the proof that you're going to miss nothing. It's all coming in your future. It's going to be unimaginably glorious. There's no religion, no philosophy, no human being can offer a kind of future where everything is restored to you, hundredfold. And as Christians, our hope is an historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, attested by hundreds of witnesses, and for which most of Jesus' closest friends were willing to die. That's our future. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes I just got to confess to you, I just wish you would take me from grace to glory. I want to go from knowing you just now to being with you forever. And yet I'm still in this world. And while we're in this world and in this age, all of us here are going to experience hardship and pain and difficulty. For some people, it might be that their marriage is breaking apart this morning. I want to lift those people up to you. For some people, it may be that their job is failing. It may be a a secret sin that is causing addiction in someone's life here today, which they just can't break free from. It may be the way they're treated by someone who's dear to them. It may just be loneliness. Or whatever it is, we we know that we live in this age. We live in this tension. We know something better is to come. So help us think on what is better in the midst of our suffering. Help us think on what is glorious. And by doing so, we might become these free lovers of God that, that we recognize that you're, you're doing something in this, this suffering, that as we meditate on this future hope we have in a glorious new body and, and being forever with you, Jesus, and we're being transformed, renewed day by day, becoming more like Jesus, a free lover of God. That we want to please you, Father, not just for the things you can hand us out, the gifts you would give us on our birthdays and otherwise, We want to please you for you because we want to delight in you. Purify our loves even as we suffer. We ask this, Jesus, in your name, please. Amen.